Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hey, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. And this week, we have someone who we all are sort of fanboys of. So it's always fun when you get to meet your heroes. And uh, Fred Reichold is one of those. And um, you know, it's hard to know where to begin when you're introducing Fred because he's the creator of the Net Promoter System of Management. He's uh, the founder of Bain and Company's Loyalty Practice, the author of five best-selling books, um, including his latest one, which we'll talk about today: "Winning on Purpose: The Unbeatable Strategy of Loving Customers." Um, he's also a frequent speaker in major business forums. His works in loyalty has been covered in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Uh, we could go on. Long list of publications. Author of eight Harvard Business Review articles on the subject of loyalty. He's a LinkedIn influencer, a member of corporate leaders and public figures who are thought to be leaders in their fields. Consulting Magazine called him one of the 25 most influential consultants. And according to New York Times, he put loyalty economics on the map. And The Economist, one of my favorite things, refers to him as the high priest of loyalty. Fred, welcome to our podcast. Nice to be here, Timothy. Thank you. Well, I thought it might be interesting to begin with, um, you know, for our readers, maybe just a quick intro to the net promoter score idea and why it's not just a metric, but a philosophy. Sure. I, you know, net promoter wasn't the first thing I did in my career. It, 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 my business career began at Bain & Company uh, studying companies who I admired, partly because of their financial success. They were growing sustainably and far more profitably than you would think from classic strategic, uh, what I'd learned at the business school. And, and, and but they also treated people right. And we, we found that it was the loyalty of customers and employees at the core that was driving this, this sh sh you know, sh shocking level of, of prosperity. Um, and, and I focused on the economics of loyalty, which are amazing. You know, it's, it's people, I think Warren Buffett and others talk about the, the, the miracle of compound interest rates. Well, there's a miracle inside businesses that are compounding a retention and loyalty advantage. And it does drive the kind of eye-popping prosperity that, that people don't understand. And, and, and accountants to this day can't track it. it mm. The basic idea that treating customers so they come back for more and bring their friends, you know, with loving care is the, mm. when you get that flywheel spinning, um, it's a shocking advantage and and still accounting does not track it when you say gee how how much of your revenue or how much of your growth is coming from repeat customers and their referrals accountants just scratch their head and, and you know it boggles my mind net promoter was just a 
a step along that journey, an important step yeah. of all the lives you touch. Yeah. How many are enriched? How many are diminished? That's you know promoters minus detractors. So it's a it's a moral philosophy that links to this economic reality of customers coming back for more and bringing on their friends. Well, I want to pull on that string of a philosophy because you know, in a sense, your latest book, which um, which you described the central idea. Just to make sure I got this right when I read the book that an enlightened understanding of a golden rule provides the bedrock principle underpinning customer capitalism and serves as the foundation for generating good and sustainable profits. And, you know, you talk about NPS 3.0, but it's really conscious, I mean, sorry, customer um, capitalism that you're talking about in the book. And so as a philosophy, I'd love to hear you you know, maybe start to delve into that a little bit for us. Well, I think the highest purpose of a business is to enrich the lives of its customers. Um, it may, that's how it makes the world a better place. Um, leaders who, who are wise understand that the way they do that is to inspire their teams of employees to embrace that mission and then to help them succeed at it. And to the, you know, that aligns everyone's interests that to the extent you're the coach who is trying to help your teams lead lives of purpose and meaning you know, and through great service to others, not just satisfactory, but life enriching service that will make those people recommend that to their friends, you know, and recommendation is an act mm -hmm. of love. You've had such a wonderful experience. You want to share that with someone you care about. That I think is at the core of this economic miracle. So love is at the center and it all comes from a, a an organization who has managed to focus that love on their the ultimate customer. Well, I love the the way you treat the idea of recommendations. In your book, you mention a story of somebody who recommends a Caribbean holiday place, <laughs> and then the guy spends the week worrying that his friends are actually having a good time, checking the weather reports, waiting for them to come back with bated breath. But it makes the point that when you recommend something to a friend or a family member it's really an extension of of your own sort of credibility and your brand your personal reputation you know when you recommend you're putting your credibility on the line and and yes it was in, in a number of ceos that that particular story was a fortune 1000 no fortune 100 ceo who he just made it per you know you personally are sticking you're taking a risk and you only do that when you feel confident that that company or that brand is going to come through for you but you care you, you, you don't care so much about the company you care about your friend your loved one the object of that referral so this notion of love is at the center and you're right there's there's risk um i don't think people recommend companies who pollute the environment or abuse their employees or or cheat their suppliers it's this when you recommend someone enthusiastically to someone you care about it's a lot more than just economic value that you're recommending yeah and i think that brings us to an essential connection right especially between employees and customers that really cannot have high customer loyalty without high employee loyalty as well. Generally speaking, maybe there are exceptions. Maybe there are companies where customers don't have a choice. You're the only big store in town. You have to go there, even though their employee turnover might be 120% a year. But generally speaking, 
it is the case that employee loyalty is a kind of a prerequisite, right? Condition. Yeah, for- and loyalty is a tricky word. I, you know, I think a lot of employees who think they're lawyer loyal might be Deadwood. You know, it, 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 this what it's not just staying there. Um, mm. What does it mean to be loyal? I think it means to to it's willing to it's self sacrifice. There's some principle. There's some purpose that is more important than your own selfish needs and. And when you pick the right purposes to be the objects of your loyalty, life can be really good. And when you screw up, loyalty can be a bad thing. Yeah, so we can talk about behavioral loyalty and emotional loyalty, right? Behavioral is just like I'm kind of stuck in a rut or I'm just, I don't have a choice. But emotionally, I'm loyal is different, right? Which is that I'm consciously choosing and, and delighted to be to be part of that relationship. Uh, well, the, the, that, you know, the success, you know, I think loyalty ultimately is to a set of principles. Mm. And then there are organizations and individuals who embody those principles and advance them. Mm. And so your, you know, personal loyalties, the, the good ones are to those, those people, those organizations who are advancing the principles you think are worthy of, of sacrifice. I remember years ago that uh, Glenn Urban at MIT wrote a book called uh, Advocate, Don't, Don't Relate, Advocate. You remember that? It kind of goes to the next level, I think, of yeah. uh, that basically you should tell the customer if, if your competitor's offering is better for them, right? Even though they're willing to buy your product and they don't know about your competitor's product, uh, your duty is to actually steer them towards what's best for them, right? And then when you do that, of course, they become, you lose the transaction, but you deeply strengthen trust and build the relationship and they become passionate advocates on your behalf when you advocate for them. Yeah, my my interpretation of the golden rule is treat people the way you'd want a loved one treated. And the example you just gave is a perfect one. If you know there's something that will uh, serve their needs better and their their health, their well-being, their prosperity, you're really not living up to a very high moral standard if you just pitch them what you've got because it's in your self-interest to make money, um, and and that's wrong. It, you know, it's morally wrong, and and in the and what I think we've been able to prove in winning on purpose is it's economically wrong because the only companies that prosper are those who are. Uh, where their customers feel the love and they come back for more and bring their friends. And that promoter as a metric has illuminated that reality because you can measure net promoter for everybody in the industry in a comparable apples to apples way. And we find that only the NPS leaders are delivering a long-term value to their shareholders. And that, so it, you know, it's a little bit acting in a moral high ground, you know, love loving way actually leads to the most profitable um, thing for your investors. And But we struggle sometimes with the uh, sort of uh, chicken and egg aspect of that. Or, you know, we have these principles of conscious capitalism. We refer to them as tenets, right, which is a pillar of fundamental belief, as opposed to tactics. So these are not tactics to make more money. These are the ways, as you said, a moral philosophy for how we should live and how we should treat each other including our employees and customers. And we run into this issue sometimes where leaders will look at some of the research and say, wow, this way of being results in greater prosperity profits over time. Therefore, we want to do it. And yeah, but remember them, account that the, uh, the yardstick or the time clock that we're using mm-hmm. in business mm-hmm. is accounting. And it's yeah. deeply flawed. 
because it doesn't measure how well customers are coming back for more and referring their friends. And I, over the years, I, I sort of recognized the problem there, but the longer I've, I've served on boards, I continue to be on public company boards and you see accounting is just a crappy metric for success in life or business. It's mm. useful. I think cash flow is more useful than profits, frankly. But mm. but accountants know how to measure these things. They're you know they're they're fictions. They're created by human. You know they're just you know there's nothing naturally real about accounting. They made it up. It's useful, but it's 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 really uh, getting in the way of of helping people make good choices for their life and for their for business. But again, the, the philosophical uh, point I was making was. If leaders view these things as tactics towards greater profits, they're not ready to work. Unless well, and if you think of profits as your purpose, you're gonna yeah, you, you will yeah. fail. And right. and right. most businesses, although they might not say those words, because they use accounting to measure progress, to set budgets, to pay bonuses, to report to shareholders, they are adopting the implicit mm -hmm. philosophy of accounting, which is profits as purpose. And it's wrong. Mm. Uh, I love in your book, you're, you're a big advocate for customer-based accounting. And you make a really strong case for the whole idea of the earned growth rate and the fact that most companies aren't sophisticated enough, which, which is almost mind-boggling because at one level, you, you make it sound very simple. It's, it's like, okay, which customers are coming back? Who are the new customers? Did they come by recommendation or did you buy them with discounts or advertising and uh, that most companies don't have the ability to even begin to measure those things. It takes it a custom consulting study. It takes a custom consulting study to figure out what your earned growth rate is. And mm. um, as we have done that in, in a number of companies and winning on purpose, I use first Republic bank as someone who actually was smart enough to do that themselves. And they mm. can, they can, prove to their investors that 90% of their growth is coming from existing customers expanding their businesses, net net of, of decliners and defectors. So the net revenue retention rate plus new customers who are coming in primarily based on referral from existing customers. So earned growth rate of you know 90% of their growth, they're we found the very best companies in the world are operating up there and higher, um, but they don't know it. And companies, investors don't know it. And you know, for me, Net Promoter Score was a pretty cool flashlight to shine on this this murky uh, customers mm -hmm. coming back for more and bringing their friends. And I investing on those insights, I have returned on the last ten years for my personal portfolios better than any mutual fund tracked by Morningstar. It was twenty six ish percent per year which is unheard of. Why should I, you know, and I'm not an investment wizard. Why should I be able to do that? Because I actually, I can see into that magic flywheel of who's really doing a good job of uh, loving their customers and who's not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love that as a part of that, you know, you, you create this whole idea of a customer capitalism manifesto. And, you know, playing a little bit off of the moral philosophy idea, you know, your first sentence of that, you know, it's hard not to catch your eye when you write, great companies help people lead great lives. 
they are a force for good. And then you go on to say that the singular purpose is to enrich the life of every customer you touch. Those are, you know, pretty good opening lines for a manifesto. Well, they're radical. And I think manifesto <laughs> carries tones of radicalism, which is why I used it. I mean, it is a radical idea. You know, how, how many companies today, how many leaders believe that Enriching customers' lives should be their primary purpose, is their primary purpose. It's 10%. 90% of business leaders think Fred is wrong. And uh, so I am radical. And where does that leave the marketing professors? I mean, you know, <laughs> l- little elbow there, Raj, in terms of, <laughs> well, you know, the, the bot customers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I was coming of age, I mean, relationship marketing uh, was a big thing in the 90s. Uh, Fred's work. Uh, then I'm thinking of uh, who were the two, Martha Blackburn and uh, no um, Don well, Peppers and Rogers. Remember Don Peppers and Martha Rogers, right? So they were also writing in this relationship marketing, this realm. Uh, I think all of that was, to me, bringing a higher purpose to marketing. It was saying what marketing is really about. It is to acquire. It is to to serve and continue to serve customers and create value and improve the quality of their lives. Uh, by doing that, being in a relationship, not in a transaction. I remember Phil Kotler had an article where he talked about marketing as gardening versus hunting, right? Mm-hmm. The old metaphor was hunting. It was about who are the targets? You know, what's the lure that we put out there? How do we get them? How do we capture them? Build market share, et cetera, right? And then the gardening metaphor is really we, you know, we cultivate them, we grow them, we, you know, they evolve over time and, you know, that continues to grow and flourish and so forth. Uh, so I think it was really taking marketing towards a much higher consciousness. So I thank you for that. That kept me in marketing for another decade. <laughs> well, there have been a lot. It, it, there have been a fair number of people who intuitively see this and agree with it and, and have great stories and metaphors. What's been lacking, I think, is a reliable measurement process that that brings this truth to life. And 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 you can do some scientific evidence-based testing to see, you know, have the companies who have the most promoters who really feel like their life has been enriched and they're out there referring, you know, are those companies generating better shareholder returns? Are they better places to work? Um, And so on. And and that's where net promoter score is really stepped, I think, away from the pack. And now most of the world is using it. Now, Now, a lot of them are misusing it. I hope winning on purpose can get them back on mm. track. But with earned growth, there, there is just no excuse for mm. I mean, what board of directors can sit there and, and feel like they are protecting the, you know, their fiduciary responsibility to their investors, especially their long-term investors, who, who are not demanding, we need to measure earned growth rates and know how we're mm. doing versus the competition. Mm. And, and, and you know it's a it's long. The net promoter score is twenty years old. Earned growth is one year old. We have a long way to go. But I just cannot imagine a board, a serious, uh, oh, you know, intellectually honest board who would not say, hmm, "Now that I've seen Fred's stuff, I see we must figure out how to measure earned growth, not just once, but systematically as a way of running our company and making decisions." So, Fred, I seem to remember a conversation we had years ago about bringing similar kinds of relatively simple but profoundly uh, insightful uh, metrics uh, to other stakeholders. 
Right? Yeah. So have you done any of that? Like, do we have the equivalent or some version of these kind of net promoter type metrics for employees, especially, but even suppliers, uh, for example? Well, in the, I think it's chapter three of the book, I, I, I share what Bain and Company does, uh, mm. which, which is sort of opening the kimono to, and, and you know, I, I'm half time Bain still, but, you know, this is the non Bain half speaking. Bain's one of the best places to work on earth. Um, it's hard, <laughs> it's hard work, but uh, it's been number one on Glassdoor more often than any other firm in history. Um, it, you know, why? Well, I think because of this core philosophy, the reason we exist is to help our clients succeed and prosper and, and, and lead lives that they're proud of. And uh, how do we do it? Well, we have weekly huddles. Uh, every team gets together. They, they launch the team meeting with five or six questions that you want to ponder the night before the meeting. You score it. And, and then the whole team gets to see the results. But that, and those, those, those questions that recenter us, which have nothing to do with accounting or profits or meeting our budget, they have to do with um, how proud we are of uh, what we're accomplishing for our client, uh, whether, this is, whether our team is, is, is so good that we would recommend joining it to a, a, a colleague. And 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 whether we are uh, working at a pace that that helps us uh, lead balanced, sustainable lives, but those that regular reframing of progress to those ideas identifies where there are problems and barriers that need to be addressed. It helps the office heads and the executives of the company spot problems where teams aren't happy with the value they're delivering to customers or that this isn't the kind of place, you know, what, and when you, when you tease apart, how likely you recommend your team as a great place to work, 80% mm. of that has to do with the leader of the team. And so whether, mm. you know, it, we, every six months, we have teams anonymously, you know, carefully protected, evaluate their leaders. And, and that becomes not only a coaching device, but it's quite evaluative. You, you just, it's very hard to get promoted at Bain without being highly regarded by the people on your team. And that has totally changed the power structure. Um, and the world doesn't get it. That you, you don't want bosses picking leaders unless they know how well those leaders have lived up to the values of the company in the eyes of their teammates and the, the people who've worked, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And, uh, you know, we got a process that's hard to cheat because people have tried over the years and, and you'd like all accounting, you know, they have audits and we've got a process of having the right people elevated to positions of power and authority. And I just, you know, I, I lay that out pretty clearly in the book. It's radical. I'm mm. sort of shocked that, that people have not uh, grabbed that and, and, and asked about it. Well, I'd love to draw the connection between that and something you spend a lot of time talking about in the book, which is humility, and the idea that humility sits at the begin at the at the core of being a servant leader. And I bring this up, little tongue in cheek, but um, 
you know, not just Bain, but if you if if you make it to one of the big consulting firms, then one, you probably were one of the ten applicants into a top business school. You were probably you pretty good at school. Business no school. <laughs> and then you were probably one of the top, you know, 10% of your class to get into one of the big consulting firms. And now, Nirvana, you've made it to Bain. But in a leadership development program, how do you help people? develop humility, you know, as opposed to the Winston Churchill quote of, you know, oh, yes, uh, <laughs> Lord so-and-so. Yes, he's very humble, but then he has so much to be humble for. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, how do we... Well, the other the quote, <laughs> what I thought you were going to do with Churchill was that he his, his evaluation of his career, it's been a, a steady string of failures interrupted by an occasional success. <laughs> I, I, in some ways, you know, it's it's a state of mind. But in in terms of this loving customers mm. and helping your customers succeed in this difficult world, challenging world, um, I think intellectually honest people see how far we have to go and how hard it is. Mm. So in some ways, it's 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 the honesty that you see the challenge. Um, you know, if your purpose is to enrich the lives you touch, how many of us are doing that? 90 or 95 percent of the time you know almost nobody so it, it, you just have to set the right target to to not get full of yourself now in in my opinion uh, one of the shocking things in business you know fortune magazine would keep the the most admired list and as you, the older you get the more you say wow there's a lot of turnover on that list guys that used to be really admired now they suck and I kept, I wondered, what is it? Um, you know, it's creative destruction. And, and there have been economists who look at this, but I think they missed, I don't think it's new technology and, uh, and innovation that actually crushes the, these large companies because they have such an advantage. When you're the market share leader, you've got economic advantage, you can recruit, you've got the resources. How do they screw up? It is, it's this arrogance it's so hard to learn and innovate and improve when you think you're the best. And, um, you know, I, in the final chapter, I, it's my, you know, Fred's lessons of yeah, life. Yeah. The, the enemies are arrogance, complacency, um, entitlement. Those things creep in to financially successful companies and pretty consistently uh, destroy them. Mm. So what's the what's the counterweight to that force that that brings that to the fore? Because you have some, you know, great examples around like, um, uh, you know, in the book, first service, I think, is one of them or um, and and you highlight these are such humble people and they want to work with other people who are very humble. And the and I often wonder, is it the charismatic leader or the, the leader who builds the business, who sets a certain tone and therefore, um, you know, it becomes a culture norm within an organization? Or, you know, if, if I speak to leaders who so to say, you know, I want to be customer centric and I want my organization to move in this direction, we're going to do some customer training or leadership development that brings customers to the to the fore um bringing in humility and sort of saying we're going to mix that into the, the the thing here we're going to do a module in your leadership development on being humble um i i come back to like 
how do you seed that? How do you connect that? You know, it, it's obvious when you say it, and yet in practice, I think so difficult for leaders to to live it or encourage it or develop it in their organizations. Well, this is not a new idea. You know, I, it, it, the Bible is full of it. Probably ancient texts that precede the Bible. Yeah, yeah. In the in the in the Christian one of the uh, you know. Sermon on the Mount, the, the the meek shall inherit the earth, which which is a mistranslation. The humble mm. shall inherit the earth is the right translation. So people have known for a long time that the ability to recognize um, how far we have to go uh, versus our potential and, and versus the true purpose is a, a vital gift. Um, it is harder to maintain that mindset the more successful you've been. Mm. And so that's, that's a little bit of the, uh, the catch 22 there or the, or the, uh, the, the, the challenge that great com- you know, wildly successful companies, whether, you know, look, IBM, General Motors, all of these stunning. And, and, and I hope, you know, Apple is on the top of their game today. How far they can go, I think has a lot to do with leaders ability to remain humble mm. and remain uh, servants to the success of their people and helping them uh, embrace a mission of uh, of service to others, and and you know that I guess is the ultimate. That's humility, right? Mm. Your your mm. your job is to serve others. That's what servants do. Yeah. That mentality is is vital. Mm. Hey, uh, Fred, I'm curious about. Uh, I'm sure you're an observer of all the major companies out there. What do you think of Microsoft's uh, turnaround under Satya Nadella? I haven't met him, but he must be a hell of a guy. Um, that, he, I, I didn't. I wasn't paying attention to Microsoft because I wasn't a fan of their uh, sharp elbows, bullying yeah. uh, approach to business. Yeah. And uh, and then I read that the new CEO had embraced Net Promoter, and and his and I started listening carefully to. So I really liked the philosophy, and then I see the the economic results are really impressive. So. I guess, uh, yeah, shame on me. I should have found a way to meet him and understand what he's, how he's pulled off what he has because it's, it's a miracle. It's a pretty incredible turnaround of a pretty entrenched culture, which for 28 years under Gates and Barmer operated us one way, right? As you said, with arrogance and sharp elbows uh, and so forth. And now it's about empathy. It's about humility. It's about a growth mindset. Right? It's about a renewed sense of purpose. And then modeling all of that, as you said, you have to model, coach, and care, you know, the kind of culture that you want to see. So it's a pretty incredible and very, to me, encouraging story because it says you can, even a massive company with a huge history and, and uh, you know, inertia, you would expect, uh, literally within two or three years was dramatically transformed by the power of leadership and leadership rooted in these fundamental human values. All right. So this is, you've got something, a new one for my to-do list. <laughs> Um, you're right. Microsoft is a brilliant example. I've got to understand that better. So his book, uh, Hit Refresh, uh, is a great one. But also, there's a there's a great Harvard case about cultural transformation at uh, at Microsoft, um, and it kind of brings me to this metaphor. I think you, when we met last year, we must have talked about it. But uh, what do you think of this idea? Of business as a force for healing in the world. It's about reducing suffering, and it's about bringing joy into the lives of your customers, your employees your communities, right? If we can be instruments of that, 
Does that align with your thinking? It does. I uh, I took a lot of risks in this book, winning on purpose. Mm. One of them was to say what I think about businesses as, as an organization. Um, you know, free market uh, business organizations, I think, are the miracle of of, uh, of human organizations. You, you, you know, they're governments and schools, and there's lots of different nonprofits. They're just fine and and play vital roles but they they just none of them could exist without this um this miracle of treating customers in such a loving way that they come back for more and bring their friends and because that not only funds the growth of the business and and makes the investors happy and the employees happy that you know without that economic miracle right there the tax dollars to fund the government, the donations to fund the charities, the churches, it, it would be gone. And people forget that. You know, there's it's so easy to fixate on on the misbehaving businesses that are bullies and, and they've got the wrong purpose. They can't keep that for long because free markets, uh, you know, customers can, can buy from somebody else. So I, you know, when you talk about the magic and and the the fundamentally important role that business plays, I, I think people have forgotten that. And the and the ones who prosper are the ones who, you know, have the high net promoter scores, the highest earned growth. They are loving customers and 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 we know it because when customers feel the love, they come back for one and bring their friends. That's that's the litmus test of have you made customers' lives better? And yes, so I think bringing joy is part of it. I think easing suffering, um, suffering with dignity, these are all good things. Solving customer problems is the core purpose of a business. And men, when they do it well, they not only make the customers happier, they make the employees and the investors in the world better. And, and it is just underappreciated today. Well, I'm sure like all of us, uh, you must have observed Jack Welch and General Electric and their seeming extraordinary success for years and years and years uh, until it all fell apart at some point later on. He was a counterexample uh, to my uh, my yeah. philosophy. They were almost like an anti-loyalty machine. They didn't want any loyalty and they didn't want to be loyal to anybody and they didn't expect loyalty other than, you know, based upon money. And I think that was a counterfactual, as they like to say, which has ultimately proven to be uh, a house of cards. Yes. Um, you know, schadenfreude is not a good thing, uh, but I do feel good when people who are not enriching the lives of customers and employees, when they stumble, <laughs> because it, it's just, you know, one, it's sort of like, uh, what are there, two or three actively managed uh, mutual funds that still beat the market over time. So it's like Jack Bogle and his philosophy that, you know what, you're better off in an index fund. They The, the, the counter examples just keep falling off. And I guess Warren Buffett is still there, but that's not a fair example because he takes a much more active role than a pure passive investor. And and I suppose what I hope to accomplish with winning and purpose is lay out the, the proof cases. Every industry we look at, the, the total shareholder return lines up with who's doing the best job at loving their customers. And, and we have yet to find a, a counter, you know, obviously monopolies are temporarily getting in the way there. But, but the, when, when you recognize, okay, the magic flywheel of, of economic prosperity 
It's treating customers so they come back from or bring their friends. We must measure that and, and act on those insights. That's why earned growth is so vital. Most companies can't measure that the health of their flywheel today. And so they go down flawed paths that where there is no evidence of long-term success, yeah. but they go down them because it looks like you make more money this year or next year. So there's a bunch of questions that come up for that, but I'm going to focus on one for the moment. Your favorite turnaround story that you were involved with where it was a turnaround, where you think that they made the biggest leap from you know, zero to 60, so to speak. What, what, what's, what's on your top, you know, top of the pops hit list? Oh, well, there's no question. It's Bain & Company itself. We, we went from the hottest game in town to nearly bankrupt and more nearly morally bankrupt. Uh, people just, you know, at each other's throats back to, what, you know, certainly one of, if not the most admired company in our industry. Mm over a, uh, you know, what's been 50 years. And so I, I've just never seen a company go as deep into the hole as we did. And especially in a business where your reputation mm. and your ability to recruit and inspire, I mean, consulting is you don't have mm. fixed assets. You don't sort of own all the patents that's, that you can sort of screw up on the management side mm. and still get through it. We had none of that. And, and, and yet, well, you know, look at the facts that that Glassdoor, you name it, mm. Bain is um, is special, and so that's why I told the Bain story. It is the ultimate turnaround. Oh, I think Microsoft is, is, is pretty is, darn is interesting. I, you know, I I think T-Mobile is a great example mm. of a company who really was struggling. They were the weakest in the industry, the worst retention rates, the worst technology, the worst everything, and now they're the best mm. and in NPS and total shareholder return. So I, I use that case study pretty heavily in winning on purpose. I I think it's it's worth a very careful uh, evaluation by anyone who feels like they're in a turnaround or a transformation situation. Well, I, I want to sort of switch a little bit here, and that's to this idea of loving artificial intelligence. So you know, you go beyond ethical AI, you know, as we move into this digital world, you're an advocate for loving AI, not not in loving AI, but AI that's loving. So I'm, I'm fascinated to hear a little bit more of, you know, as we move away from that touch point of the human connection, how do we translate into AI? And what do you see as the future there? Well, I think it's more danger than than hopefulness now because so much of AI is focused on accounting stuff mm. that leads you down the wrong path. Uh, AI knows how to sell you more stuff. Um, it knows how to pick your pocket uh, and 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 manipulate your behavior in a way that's in the profit's best interest, not in in your best interest. The challenge is making sure that people who are creating these learning engines are have an objective function in mind of making the customer's life better because mm. uh, when if, if ai is focused on your your well-being and prosperity um i think it can be brilliant but but no one's close to that mm. yet in my opinion so is the, the board be asking that quite is now the time you know it's one thing to talk about customer accounting and now AI is a big discussion about the future of strategy and that should the boards be really asking that question, what is the ultimate objective oh, yeah. that we're, we're doing? Absolutely. With 
I mean, if you can't have a board checking on, and, and there is a tension, you know, mo- the old fashioned laws that, that got capitalism where it is mm. 50 years ago, they're still the laws that govern public companies and they're obsolete. They, they say the board members, primary responsibility is to investors, not to customers, not to employees, not to the environment, not to the community, you know, but I don't, I think if, if, boards take that seriously and they say okay well my, if my duty is to make my you know i represent my shareholders interests fred's book makes a pretty powerful case <laughs> that i need to keep our customer folk we need to keep focused on loving customers or we won't be able to deliver on that uh, that outcome of making our investors happy so it's not just digital when you yes we need customer based accounting and and an earned growth mentality uh, something that really captures the health of the magic flywheel and um and digital should play a major role there but if you had a customer-based accounting and earned growth you could use digital to reinforce and engage in little things like um i i have people phone companies some of them who are clients they'll say oh we have a people aren't responding to surveys much anymore and, and neither do i because there are so many signals that you can pick up digitally to know if you've enriched a life or if you've wrecked a life. For example, I get trapped in a, in a phone queue, a digital phone queue, and it won't let me out. And I just start rage dialing the, the zero button. <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> they know that. And, and then they'd send you a survey that you don't, you know, come on, waste everybody's time. Hey Fred, I'm going to come to my favorite question, uh, which is... Um... What is would you? How would you articulate your purpose in your life, and uh, and how did you arrive at it? I may get better at articulating it, but my hope for, from an early age in business was that I could help businesses measure success more effectively than they do today, and so that when they have the right purpose, they actually know how to track and, and gauge progress toward that purpose. I think it's way off center today, relying on accounting. I think all of the good intentions around ESG and DEI are excellent, and yet a lot more fuzzy, mm. unscientific metrics isn't going to help us toward that more fundamentally core purpose of enriching customer lives and engaging it you know, by how much they come back for more and refer their friends. So it, that's what it is. And I'm not sure, I don't know, I made some progress. I feel great about some things, but my goodness, we've got a long way to go. What was it about your life, your your nature, as you were born with, or your upbringing, or awakening experiences that you mm, might have had? Great... Not just intellectual, <laughs> but emotional. No, I lost faith. I lost mm-hmm. faith in a lot of other organizations uh-huh. that seemed like higher moral purpose, whether they were nonprofits or churches, and you know. So part of it is just seeing the sh- the uh, the limitations. Of, of that governance model. And then part of it was I, uh, when I was, uh, you know, I grew up in Parma, Ohio. I don't think anyone from Parma High School had ever gone to Harvard in the history of, you know, of Europe. And so I got into Harvard and, but I, you know, it's modest uh, financially. And I lived with my uncle who, who uh, had a house in, in Weston outside Boston. So I, I drove into college, which is unheard of. You go to Harvard, you live in the dorms. That's how you become you know, <clears throat> whatever it is. 
And so, but I, with this uncle, he was a, uh, he ran a fortune 500 company mm -hmm. and also was on the atomic energy commission. He was the chairman of MITRE, which does defense work. And so you get all these mixed things, you know, how anti-war and anti-government and, and everything the colleges were when I was there. And, and I saw his businesses being run brilliantly where they were better than families because they have the love of families, but they have the accountability that families fail in so often. Um, and so I, I, I had a model of how good it could be when, when business is done right. Oh, and then almost none of the businesses I bumped into after, you know, after business school came close to that high standard. And, you know, some did, and that's where this fascination would, boy, there's a few companies that are doing it. I see Enterprise Rent-A-Car doing this, I, and, and, and that's what, what got me on this path. A new question, which we haven't used before, but I think, especially with somebody who's had such an incredible journey and career, you know, to ask, what, what would you say are some fundamental truths that you've realized about business and about life? Well... There, you know, there's a book that came out about 10 years ago, um, The Righteous Mind. It, it, uh, it, it's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's along those lines. It is, um, you want the world to be, to be the way, you know, you've got a, a view of the world and how the, the, the hip tone is, bone is connected to the knee bone and cause and effect. And you, uh, all of us mm. can only see the stuff that reinforces and supports that set of beliefs. And it, so it is, if you have a humble learning mindset, you have to be, you have to work really hard to not blot out the data points that don't support your theory mm -hmm. and then, you know, rattle and make a, and completely fixate on the ones that, that reinforce it. Uh, I think the recent political stuff has just made me more aware of how mm -hmm. susceptible humans are to that, uh, that flaw. And I think, you know, in evolutionary terms, it must have had value or it wouldn't be there, but it really gets in the way of uh, evaluating the best path and honestly uh, uh, checking your, your progress toward it. And so, you know, given that how hard that is, mm. I think businesses really should work at not just making themselves feel good about uh, reinforcing what they already think. And, and I don't, I don't have simple ideas, but I think we do need to have scientific measurement forced into the business world more effectively than we have. Cause you know, that's how we got past the crazy beliefs. Many people got past the crazy beliefs about what, how, how the world works. I think to understand how business works, there just has to be step function improvements in in scientific measurement well you know that that leads to an interesting last question which is you know you taught you touch on it on your introduction of your book about you know capitalism changing and you know we're obviously coming at it from the conscious capitalism point of view there's stakeholder capitalism there is your proposition around consumer capitalism we have b corps and b teams and inclusive capitalism there is a lot of movement um, in the direction that you're leading us here. Maybe not always as precise as you are around the focus on the customer, but all of the values that go with it about taking care of people, making people matter, making customers matter, enriching lives. There's a lot of movement. And yet, 
despite all that movement, the narrative at the core of business feels sometimes like it's barely nudging. And I'm curious, you know, to, to what extent do you observe that and sort of say, hey, we've got to find a, a way of unifying this stuff in, 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 and, you know, that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and we're not quite there because we're all touching the elephant and saying it's different things, all recognizing that there's a need for change. You remember the uh, Max Weber, the uh, physicist genius who, uh, I believe, as I understand it, really built quantum mechanics um, or his insights led to that. And and no one ever recognized his uh, earth shattering uh, insights. And, and, and But then eventually he won the Nobel Prize and, and somebody asked him how he finally convinced his colleagues that his ideas were right. And he said, oh, I didn't convince anyone. <laughs> The old guys just died off. They had a fixed mindset. It was new young people that came in and saw that and saw that I had better ideas, and they adopted it. I think there's a lot of truth there. Mm. You just don't change people's minds once they become adults. Very few have the flexibility mm. that the, the, the sort of the intellectual honesty and humility mm. to change their point of view. So you know why is it that? The world works where people die at a certain age and, and babies mm. take over. <laughs> I think that's the only way you get progress. And, and frankly, I think with companies, mm. they get big and powerful and then they do all sorts of bad things. <laughs> they get killed by young, innovative new companies taking over. So in general, that's our defense. I do hope that there are companies like Apple, I mean, maybe Amazon, Microsoft, who can really extend their useful life by getting a clear picture of the true purpose, the true North Star that should, uh, should be guiding them and, and good things will happen. But, but I'm not a big government guy, you know, government mm -hmm. solve our problems, but one problem uh, in addition to pollution, government has to protect the, because once you get big and powerful, mm -hmm. you can, you tend to get abusive. So I am a huge fan of, let, let's keep the playing fair, field fair and, and not let uh, guys, uh, once they get into near monopolist power, yeah. don't let them run things. Yeah. Well, Fred, thank you so much for covering such a breadth of topics with us today and doing so with such humility, because in your case, there is a lot that you actually, you know, <laughs> have accomplished, and yet you're still very humble and really appreciate this time. The book Winning on Purpose, The Unbeatable Strategy of Loving Customers. Fred, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Yes, Fred, thank you so much. This was to me almost like a doctoral seminar in, in some of these <laughs> topics. And I, there's so many brilliant pieces of wisdom that you just tossed out there, uh, like moral bankruptcy, preceding economic bankruptcy, that business can be better than families in some ways, if you if you think about it, right? Oh, the best businesses are better than families. You know, I I would take that radical a position. And and some of the some parts of Bain and Company are coming pretty close to uh, to that level that that I'd uh, hold up as a model. That's extraordinary. So thank you so much for all your all your contributions to the world and for your time today. 
Thank you. Thanks, guys. And thank you to our listeners. And if you enjoyed today's podcast on whatever channel you're listening to, please feel free to hit the subscribe button. And if you feel so moved and you want to leave us some customer feedback, then go on over to iTunes and Apple and give us a rating and tell us why you rated it that way. And a special thanks to our producers at Tech Sounds and Raj. Uh, thanks to Technologico de Monterey and the Conscious Enterprise Center for supporting and advancing this work. Thank you, Fred. <laughs>